by Tarkovsky. Tarkovsky, yes. That's a nice light watch. I did. 164 minutes of deeply layered, impenetrable Russian cinema. That was just at IFC for like a long engagement. And I really kicked myself for not having gone because I'd only seen it on video before. Yeah. And you know how there are 20 minute long shots like of them on the cart Yes, the beginning, just riding the through the... And I have to admit, I think I might have fast-forwarded. Well, you missed something because in the first long shot that you're referring to, when they're on the little train car thing yeah. to travel into the zone, I think that it actually is a really effective shot. It's not 20 minutes, first of all. It's maybe right. two minutes. Um, four. It's, it's, it's less than 10. <laughs> you're right. But what happens is the audio track becomes manipulated about halfway through the train journey. And that's the indication that, that we're traveling into the zone. Right. It's a strange movie to watch because if you wrote the action down of what's taking place on the screen, it's, you know, some guys go into a wooded area, talk a lot, mm-hmm. something else with the guy's family. However, it is deeply emotional when you commit to it because it is about the deepest of human things in a way that's visually rendered. I'm not very well versed in Tarkovsky, so that's why I'm kind of trying to dabble a little bit in some of these things to educate myself a little bit better. And everyone always was writing about his camera, the way the camera Mm -hmm. moves. And it is incredible. The the way the camera is moving is telling you the story. Yeah. Uh, Well, Chris... Here we are, another day, another taping. A beautiful day. It's a beautiful day here in New York City. I do regret this sweater combo just because it's quite a choice. I think I look great, but it's just warmer outside. It's an interesting color. It's like Cafe LA. It's not the first substance that came to mind when I saw the sweater. (laughs) Uh, That says more about you than it does about my sweater. Go ahead. Welcome to Full Cast and Crew, where each week, Hosts Jason and Chris take a film to the extreme! Fire! Mountain Dew! Tiger Blood! Tank Tops! Pogs! <laughs> Is that the whole thing? That's it. That's great. <laughs> I thought at first you were going in the other direction to sort of get away from the testosterone. I tried, but my gosh, Brilliant. the gravitational force. Brilliant. <laughs> That's a little sneak peek of what's to come. We're going to be talking about Point Break today. The only Point Break that exists, which is the 1991 version. People might tell you otherwise, but they're liars. Wrong. You should report them. Before we get that, I have one piece of viewer mail, Chris, I'd like to read. Oh, great. It's kind of interesting. People may have remembered that we did an episode on the brilliant 1990 Sundance winning film Chameleon Street by Wendell B. Harris Jr., a criminally neglected writer, director, actor, and one of my favorite movies from the era. Very influential, very much ahead of its time. Anyway, after the episode went up, we get the following email. Greetings. I just finished listening to your Chameleon Street podcast. Very insightful and well done. I'm a fan of the movie and of Wendell. As it happens, I am also one of those cast members you talked about never appearing in anything after. Maybe because I wasn't an actor to begin with, but the friend of one who had a part and who called me the first day the hospital shoot was to begin, asking me, what are you doing right now? They need somebody. Being as I was working at that same hospital a few floors up, getting to the shoot was easy. And because it was near lunchtime, I figured what better way to spend a lunch hour. My boss agreed to let me take lunch a little early. And as I went towards the elevator, I said, see you in a little while. (laughs) 13 hours later, my scene was done. Fortunately, my boss was cool with it. And junior resident Tom is forever part of film history. Though I do not seem to recall any specific mention of him in the Sundance Award presentation. Ah, fame. <laughs> I hope you've been in contact with Wendell, and if you haven't been, you should. He's an elegant man, and the world is missing out. Discussions like yours are what's needed to shine a brighter light on this. Oh, and I cut out the wrong part. 
brighter light on, you know, <laughs> on, uh, yeah, on practically writes itself. visionary and all that kind of stuff. Uh, cheers, David Standridge, New Berlin, Wisconsin, formerly of Flint. And then he also included a photo. Um, and that's him right there uh-huh. uh, in the scene where Chameleon Street is portraying a doctor in a hospital who ends up performing hysterectomies. Like a lot. Like a lot of them. <laughs> um, so that was really great and unexpected. And then another related piece of Chameleon Street trivia, I was going through Twitter and searching for Chameleon Street references and then replying to the same with, hey, you might be interested in checking out our podcast. And one of the references was Richard Brody, who's a film reviewer for The New Yorker who takes some extremely controversial opinions. He sees through, you know, what society tells people. Look, he's with Chris. He wrote a whole piece about why Ishtar is a missing, underappreciated slice of filmic genius and... The viewers just don't get it. Anyway, this is an opinion that Chris wholeheartedly shares. Wholeheartedly. Uh, I tweeted at Richard. He responded positively to the idea of the Community Street episode. And then I think I tweaked him a little bit on the uh, Ishtar thing. And <laughs> I don't know if he responded to that. On to Point Break. On to Point Break. We're here to talk about the ultimate ride, man. Catherine Bigelow's 1991 iconic surf and bank robbery epic Keanu Swayze Busey vehicle Point Break. With a development history stretching back to the mid-80s, it's yet another film cooked up from an idea hatched by a guy sitting on a beach. In this case, one of the producers, who, while on a Malibu beach watching surfers, had the genius thought, hey, what if those guys were bank robbers? So kids, if you want to be a big-time Hollywood producer, spend more time at the beach. And sure, you can don your critical wetsuit, Chris, and call it, as many critics have, an exercise in stylish lunkheadedness, or gorgeous but dumb as a post, which is a really mean thing to say about Keanu, <laughs> or even like something scrambled by a dry California wind, or if you feel particularly devoid of human feeling, consistently dumb. And sure, it might well be all of those things. Okay, we get it. But when you're back on the sand, having shredded that gnarl left with a pointedly Swayze referential roundhouse cutback, you look deep inside that place that only Bodie knows, man. You'll step out of your iron coffin and you'll admit once and for all that Point Break is the best movie about cops, robbers, surfing, and skydiving that you're ever likely to see. It's a movie that has the greatest foot chase ever filmed. Not a car chase, a foot chase. Any hack director can do a car chase. Here are the cars. They drive around, film them. How about doing a foot chase? Try that next time you make a movie. It's a movie where a guy has a pit bull thrown at him as a weapon. A movie where that same guy has his face two inches from the whirling death of what must be the last gas-powered front combine lawnmower model in all of Los Angeles. And Chris, it's a movie where a skydiving sequence is actually beautiful and moving. I'm not kidding. For crying out loud, it's a movie where people in L.A. eat donuts, fried shrimp, and meatball sandwiches. A movie where Red Hot Chili Peppers sock stuffer Anthony Kiedis gets knocked out with one punch because he wouldn't show up for fight training during pre-production. Are you not entertained? And if you ask us how many times you need to watch this iconic, classic movie after listening to this podcast, there's only one right answer. Gary? Utah! Give me two! That's my take, Chris. I mean, that's my intro. That's not my take. As you know, my takes do not. My intro right, does not, not necessarily reflect. But I mean, when we're talking I point break. I think in break, this case, something tells me I that help. it's not going to I be uh, too far. Look, I'm all in. Go ahead. Tear it apart. Do your thing. Do what you got to do, man. Okay. Uh, yeah, it was okay. 
I mean, the foot chase was awesome. There's no two ways about it. This is the first time that I had seen it. Oh, my God. And I'll tell you why. Ugh. Because. What do you mean, why? There's no why? What do you mean? There's no reason. I mean, I know why. Okay, go ahead. I mean, I just, I don't like Keanu Reeves. And I really thought that uh, I might have changed and grown up as he's grown up because now he's gotten a lot of good ones. But I really like, even in something as, uh, what did you say? Lunk-headed, beautiful lunk-headed. Even still, even in this preposterous idea, first of all, a preposterous idea that I loved. And I think- Yes, I'm What do you mean of the former football player turned FBI agent hunting surfing bank robbers? (laughs) The idea that part of the story about where the idea came from is that uh, this guy, Richard, not Richard Kind. Whatever, he's a producer. He doesn't need need a name, he's a suit. What if these surfers, 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 what if these surfers were bank robbers? These bank robbers, you go in, 90 seconds, they just get enough that they can sort of surf on for a while. That's a very cool idea and an interesting twist on the bank robber stuff. And Patrick Swayze, he's awesome. Bodhi as a character, it was like nicely, non-ironically spiritual, just strange now that we live in a goop era uh, where branding, self-parody, and aimless spiritualism Drive-by shooting at Gwyneth further Paltrow. reduced. But I liked that character. I thought they had like had just enough. But, but I just can't buy Keanu doing anything. I am disappointed in you, Chris, because to sit here and criticize Keanu's acting in Point Break is to be cut off yourself from a wonderful and human experience that you could otherwise have. Uh, That's like so not the point. That- I, I do agree. Like, I did enjoy parts of it. And I will say that there are actually parts of like the ending I actually didn't like, but then maybe it's because I'm an old man at this point. What do you mean? I loved the character of Bodhi. I thought that, again, the, the quasi-spiritualism mixed with extreme bank robbing and mm-hmm. jumping out of planes, I thought that was very interesting. And boy, a lot of people are left dead in his wake and he is not mine. So when he's surfing in Australia and spoiler for 1991's Point Break and maybe for 2015's because I couldn't actually make it to the end of that one. That does, there's no such thing. Uh, Keanu catches him with handcuffs, but then he lets him go to have like one last surfing experience before going to jail which I don't think was a privilege he deserved. Again, you're approaching- And then then he throws away his badge like, yeah, the FBI really screwed me. Yeah, man. How? It gave him, like it paid him to surf for a month. In surfing, in the beginning of that scene, he says, you still surfing? Every day. He's found something that he's looking for. He thought he found it in the FBI, but guess what, man? The life in service of the man is not living, Chris. That's dying. Get busy living or get busy dying. I think someone said that once who probably wasn't a surfer. (laughs) Was it in this movie? Let's just go back. We're not going to start at the ending. unless You're some sort of like meta narrative approach where you want to begin at the end. That's not the kind of movie we're here to talk about. Okay. (laughs) We'll get to Memento soon We're not talking about Tarkovsky's point break. Okay. We're talking about Catherine Bigelow's point break. All right. And the first of the clips that we're going to take a look at is Special Agent Utah's introduction to the FBI, and he's playing opposite the great and historically scene-stealing John C. McGinley. Special Agent John Utah, day number one in L.A. Welcome aboard. You're going over your personnel records. Very impressive. Thank you. You may very well have been in the top 2% of your class at Quantico, but quite frankly, son, out here, you have exactly zero hours of experience in the field. You know nothing. In fact, you know less than nothing. If you even knew that you knew nothing, that'd be something, but you don't. Yes, sir. This is us. Bank robbery. And you are now in the bank robbery capital of the world. 1,322 last year in L.A. County, up 26% from the year before. That's correct. 
and we nailed over 1,000 of them. Do you know how we nail the bad guys, Utah? By crunching data. Good crime scene work, good lab work, and most importantly, good data-based analysis. Special Agent Utah, are you receiving my signal? Zero distortion, sir. Hey, you're a real blue flame special, aren't you, son? Young, dumb, and full of calm. I know. What I don't know is how, how you got yourself assigned out here to Los Angeles with us. I mean, how? I guess we just must have ourselves an asshole shortage, huh? Not so far. There is literally not another actor on the planet more right for this role at this time than Mr. Keanu Reeves, who kills that scene in every scene that he's in. Yes, he's not necessarily the Brando of film actors, okay? We can dispense with that right away. That's not what he's there for, Chris. He's, he is a movie star. He's not an actor. Okay, there's a difference, right? Yeah, I guess. What do you mean you guess? I don't think the two are mutually exclusive, though. Well, they can be. They can be. There are people who are movie stars who are not dynamic, expressive, amazing, virtuosic actors. Well, if anything, he's a little bit too expressive. He almost seems like a caricature to me. That's the point. Mm, I guess. He's playing someone who is coming to the FBI and coming out of law school because the part that's true when he tells Tyler is that he has been living his life for somebody else all this time. But only through exposure to Bodhi does he realize that he needs to live for himself, Chris. That's why at the end of the movie, he gives it up. Okay. Now, I get it. You're having the same reaction my wife had. We watched this movie. She was all excited to sit down and watch it. And then 30 seconds in, after like about this scene, (laughs) she was like standing up nervously, pacing around the room because it makes her really nervous and uncomfortable when there's bad acting. And she couldn't do it. She was like, oh my God, he's terrible. To talk about the movie seriously for a second, you have to put it in its time. Okay, in 1991, I think this was a very different type of action movie than we had seen before. I think that... The action movie heroes that had come before this were hyper macho, almost cartoonishly swollen, gun shooting alpha males of the highest order. Now, this is a very testosterone movie. Um, as my wife pointed out, at some of the fire campfire scenes where like Bodhi is pontificating and there's like a girl literally like petting him and like saying nothing. Like, yeah, the characterizations of women for a movie directed by a woman are pretty pathetic. But I think the choice of Keanu is actually really interesting for the time. I think the choice of Lori Petty is really interesting for the time. And she would not be cast in this movie if a man was directing, because you're talking about a California surf scene. Baywatch went on the air one year before this movie. And you know that the typical casting would have been some Pamela Anderson type. And they didn't go that direction. I agree with that 100%. I loved the characterization of surfers instead of sort of blissed out California stereotypes. Everybody was, this to me does seem like a 90s sort of like sort of edgy. Even like the 15-year-old kid at the surf shop who's giving Utah guff. Yeah, he's like the Home Alone Alone kid gone bad. Yeah. I enjoyed all the things that made it different. And, And you're absolutely right. I'm sure at the time, the idea of having... Having this villain who they didn't treat it like his spirituality was a lie or a way of getting over on Totally the opposite. That's still kind of cool. The hilarious beginning of the movie is Keanu in the pouring rain. It's a bookend, Chris. At the end, he's in the pouring rain, but he's a different man. I didn't even think about that. about that. No. That's some sort of Quantico (laughs) FBI shooting course. Because, of course, 
FBI agents get into a lot of shootouts. I don't know if you know that, Chris. They don't just arrest Felicity Huffman and Lori Laughlin in their <laughs> Los Angeles mansions. Yeah, that's right. They go out into the field and they fire weapons. And then we, he gets introduced to the Bureau and his hard-ass chief, played by John C. McGinley, the male version of Joan, Joan Cusack, Cusack, who steals every single movie he's ever been in. Yeah. Office Space. Office Space, of course. He's so good in that. Yeah. So brilliant in that. He's good in everything. He is, yeah. Isn't he in Platoon? I think he's in Platoon as well. That I didn't realize. I could have made that up. I think he's in Platoon. You sold it. He's been in so many good movies for, it's got to be almost 30 or 40 years now. He's just one of those guys. Yeah. He's reliably scene chewing in every performance. I think that in 1991, it's a different kind of action movie. Mm -hmm. I think that the casting is fantastic. I think Keanu, it's like, it's so pointless to discuss whether he's a good actor or not, because that's not what he's on the screen for. He's a movie star in a different way. So yes, the line readings can be wooden. Yes, the access to emotions can be non-existent. I get all that. But man, he seems like a fun hang. He seems like someone you'd love to sort of drive around and get shrimp and fries with at a Los Angeles beach shack, even though that's not a thing. Or donuts or what, what? meatball subs. Donuts are a huge LA thing. Yeah, but like the kind of bullshit donuts that our colleague Brian eats. Donuts with marrow. <laughs> donuts with all kinds of shit that you shouldn't have on a donut. But they are- They don't eat real donuts. I think they do. They're known for their donut shops. Like, we don't have donut shops here anymore. Did you see um, Tangerine a couple years ago? No. You haven't- <laughs> Yeah, Tangerine. You didn't see the obscure indie movie Tangerine? The one that was shot all on an iPhone. But no, the, <laughs> LA is a big donut town. It's also the bank robbery capital of the world or America, whatever it is in the script. <laughs> the script is hilarious because it just ping pongs around so much ridiculous shit that you can attack the movie. It's gonna be very hard for me to mount a defense of a film that doesn't really pay attention to any of the details, doesn't really worry so much about like the actual plot mechanism, where, why we're here to do what we're here to do. Like, But I would take but issue with that because I think What's really interesting about it are the few things that are sort of different and stand out. And yet some of the music cues and the way that things are playing out, some of that dialogue feels very quick, one-liner, sarcastic, boom, get to the end of the scene in a way that seemed very 90s. Well, I think that it also presages a type of movie that I'm fascinated by. As we talked about before, I'm not a big fan of the live action Marvel superhero movies, but I am a big fan of the Fast and Furious franchise. Huh. I go to see it in the theater and it's such an eyewash of spectacle. Like everything is just polished and in your face. The cars, everything is just, in, it's, too, it's, it's like hyper overload. But the other thing that I'm fascinated by in this movie's script kind of reminds me of it is it's sort of purposefully bad in execution, like the writing, the acting. It doesn't have to be quote unquote good in the way we would talk about another movie that we might sit and, and be enmeshed in. I am enmeshed when I watch Point Break because I love it so much. Mm -hmm. I'm not watching it ironically. I am watching it yeah. in appreciation of how cheesy some of the things are. But I wonder if like in the Fast and Furious franchise, do they have to kind of work to make the script kind of bad? The dialogue hackneyed and corny? Does, does someone have to make a pass and be like, this is actually a little too subtle, too good. Or is it just like you hire the right guy who's not capable of doing anything other than that? I guess it depends on where the idea came from and who came up with it. From in the, the mind of, of Vin Diesel. That, I'm sure that was the vision. Like, <laughs> I've got a car and I'm willing to film in it. Over the movies, he has his character, Dominic Toretto, has a like on again, off again love affair with the character Letty, who's played by Michelle Rodriguez. Uh -huh. And in a New York Times article a couple of years ago that I, I, I think about this article maybe 
once a week or once every two weeks because it still strikes me as one of the more ludicrous statements ever committed to history. He said part of the reason people love the Fast and Furious movies is that the love story between Dom and Letty is one of the greatest love stories in the history of cinema. Wow. If you only dial that down a million percent, maybe it wouldn't have like seemed so insane. <laughs> Point Break's an action movie, but for me, it's elevated both because um, I think the originality of the setup and the construct. Yeah. I think that, the, like you were saying, the concept of the surfers being criminals, like, you know, you're in, you're in the underbelly of Los Angeles here. And the truthfulness of that, I think, comes through in the locations and the setting, even mm -hmm. though people are ordering fried shrimp and french fries and, and meatball sandwiches in LA, <laughs> which would just never happen. Except if you were palling around with a particular slice of fried genius named Gary Busey, who we meet after Keanu does his FBI training scene. Busey is introduced to us getting ready to do some pool work. Pappas. Yeah. Here, put on a blindfold. I want to see you retrieve at least two bricks off the bottom. I've been in the field for 22 years. I fired my piece over 19 times in the line of duty. I got no idea what a blind man fetching bricks from the bottom of the pool has got to do with being a special agent. Added to which indignity, I have been saddled with some blue flamer Quantico cat. Some quarterback punk. Johnny Unitas or something. The shit they pull, huh? Yeah. Hey, Angie. What? Here's your guy. <sighs> Pappas. Angelo Pappas. Punk. Quarterback punk. Hmm. Welcome to SeaWorld, kid. Good luck, Pappas. Two bricks coming up. That's so great. And yeah. Busey is fucking fantastic in this movie. He is so all in. He is committed. And his intelligence and his presence in these scenes. Now, I get what you're saying. Keanu as a scene partner, I imagine, is probably a horrifying and frightening thing to contemplate as, an, as a trained right. actor, right? <laughs> yeah, maybe that. But in that scene, I always thought his little wave, he gives a funny, humorous little wave. Uh, to me, that shows you that Keanu knows what's going on. I He's will in admit, on yeah, it. Yeah, I have to He's, admit, I, I did react to that. It's really funny. And Busey and Swayze are both so committed that I think they have chemistry with Keanu. Now, that's kind of another thing that I think is kind of cool about the movie is that Keanu's character obviously has chemistry with Busey in the classic grizzled old mm -hmm. washed out cop and the eager newcomer. But even that, they managed to imbue with some freshness and some of the crackle that you want when you have that kind of odd couple pairing. Yeah. And then when he meets Bodhi and, you know, listen, whatever you want to say about the movie, Swayze's performance, it's its a thing of beauty. It's got depth. It's got intelligence. It's got sincerity. He means it. And his character is a real person, even in an unreal movie. What you were talking about, how uh, the script is potentially, you know, dumb. Patrick Swayze does not allow any judgment to enter into his. That characterization is as serious and real as it would have been if this mm -hmm. were much more serious or much better written. Totally. And that makes it, and seeing Gary Busey like this, let's not pretend he's Daniel Day-Lewis, but on the other hand. Oh, he was good. In his day, was, he was good. Yeah, he was great. He as, had it. He's a good did, actor. I just had completely forgotten it's, how much he had lost. It's easy to forget. Bullcasting Crew is brought to you by Two Different Guys on a Bench, a new comedy series from American Vandal star Ryan O'Flanagan. Two Different Guys on a Bench, where Ryan talks to Ryan on a bench. We keep the comedy simple, folks. Two Different Guys on a Bench videos can be found now on Facebook at Chuckler Comedy. Like and follow Chuckler for the latest and greatest short-form comedy videos. Chuckler, original comedy delivered daily. 
we worked with Gary for a few years on a TV series that we produced. Memorable years. Um, Gary famously had a motorcycle accident, I think a year or two before the filming of this movie. And mm-hmm. I think that this movie was one of his first movies kind of back after treatment and rehab. He had a pretty serious motorcycle accident. I think he had a pretty serious drug and alcohol problem that maybe contributed to the motorcycle accident. I believe he had a brain injury as a result of the motorcycle accident, at least in later years. That was certainly cited as a reason for some of his controversial behavior that we experienced. Yes. But by and large, we experienced mostly the bizarro, hilarious side of working with Gary, which had its own... own set of rules. The show that we were working on required that cast members watch videos and be prepared to talk about them. And the videos always had multiple story beats. And these were comedic viral videos. Half the cast were comedians. The other half were sort of Busey-esque B-list actors who had maybe had brushes with the law. And that's kind of why they were commenting on funny clips of people doing illegal things. Maybe you get some cast members where they wouldn't actually watch the videos and they just would show up and be funny and their lack of knowledge about what they were talking about, we would make work. Other cast members, man, they prepared, they brought in props. But Busey had a unique way of doing it. He didn't want to watch any of the videos. What he wanted was that our LA-based producer, Austin, would have to take Gary out for cheeseburgers at Shutters on the Beach in Santa Monica, which, if you know, is one of the nicer hotels in that area. <laughs> and it was an expensive lunch. So Austin would take Gary out for cheeseburgers. And while Gary would be eating these greasy, huge, he just... You can imagine. He's got the big mouth. He's cramming it full with cheeseburgers and french fries and whatever else. As Gary's eating the cheeseburgers, Austin would tell him about the clips. So in the first clip, Gary, a guy walks into a convenience store <laughs> and he would literally, and Gary, uh-huh, uh-huh, yep, mm-hmm, yeah. And Austin would basically give him a supposed working knowledge over lunch of what the 20 clips were that the following day, Gary was going to go into the studio and make comments about. <laughs> this is a two-day process. Yes, it was a two-day process. This isn't pro- the this lunch prep. before no. filming. This is so Gary could, you know, absorb the information and come up with his material. <laughs> And so then they would tape the following day and you'd get Gary on camera. And if you watch a few of the making of Point Break things, you can see this Gary talking beside a beach somewhere, alternately making total sense and even poetic sense at other times, drifting off into complete random stuff that has nothing to do with what you're there to talk about. And that's exactly what the experience of working with him would be like. And it was kind of great because we never needed him actually to know the material. Right. So Busey in this era, he's funny. He's someone you care about. He's 40 seven in this movie. And I love that the script is like, I've been working bank robbery for 22 years. I'm like, wow. <laughs> he was a prodigy. So it's like you get out of high school, then let's say you go right into the police academy and that's what, two, three years. Spend one year as a flat foot in the uniform and then boom, 25 <laughs> year old bank robbery detective. This was pre-Wikipedia. So they got stuff wrong. Like someone references carnuba wax as a surfboard wax. In which it's not. It's an edible, like, <laughs> wax. It's, like, used to make candy shiny and stuff. You know, there are all kind of wax. You know, there's, there's yeah. the sex wax and there's candle wax, earwax. I was like, I don't think they're the same thing. <laughs> so good. This is a funny clip. We should just play a little of. The science, when they're looking for a break on the ex-presidents, finally they get a break through science. This is a hilarious bit of completely nonsensical claptrap that nonetheless works. Encino savings alone. Guard grabbed LBJ's ponytail. 28 robberies. And what do we get from it? One fucking hair. Angela. What? Pay attention. There's going to be a test afterward. Lab is showing traces of toxins in the hair. Selenium, titanium, and arsenic. The beaches are always being closed because of waste spills, right? Yeah. And surfers are territorial. They stick mostly to certain breaks. If we can get some hair samples and get a match at a certain beach, 
We'd know which break the ex-presidents serve. You buying this? No. No. But let's do it anyway. It will bug the shit out of Harp. My man. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I think you're coming around now watching some of these scenes again. You're going, you know what? Busey's timing is great when he waits. You buying any of this? He waits just long enough, doesn't he, Chris, as an actor choice? And how about Keanu in that scene? Hmm. A lot of exposition to get through, a lot of information. There's a lot that he's doing. Yeah, it might be easy to criticize, but I think he's making it look pretty easy. I don't know. He talks about surfers like they're otters. You know, surfers, they're known to be very territorial and they only breed in the springtime and they leave their eggs. Well, that's true. Surfers do have localism, which is, you know, they have these breaks and specific beaches. If you were to just show up with your board, you would get a beat down. So he's right about that. That's a thing. I don't know. What isn't a thing. Just being a jerk. What isn't a thing is the concept that the water in Santa Monica, which is like two miles from the beach at Malibu, would somehow contain highly specific toxins not contained. It's the same ocean, guys. Okay? We're on the same stretch of beach here. We're not that far away. We're not talking like Oregon to California. And if there are all these toxins in the guy's hair, like, he should go to a doctor, too. Oh, my God. You know, there's a lot of movies And this movie means something to a lot of people. And there's a reason why. And I think when you look at Keanu on screen, yes, I agree. It's hard to almost think of another. I can't think of another actor who's had the career he's had with the set of skills he has. Well, like you said, there is something there is a difference between a movie star and an actor. And some people like you like somebody or you you don't. I just don't. Like watching Keanu, him. man, he's always good in every single thing. He's a freaking movie star. I do think that the Lori Petty casting is really noteworthy. She's so great in this era. She's confident, acerbic. He's kind of like the puppy dog following around and like just hoping for a scrap of attention. So they kind of flip it a little bit in a way I mm-hmm. thought was cool. Mm-hmm. This is the funny scene where the first thing that I thought was hilarious was the concept of anyone eating fried shrimp and French fries in California. But maybe that's more of a common thing. Not being a surfer myself, who knows what those people subsist on in their territory. They'll find a shrimp shack. A shrimp shack. What do you want? Shrimp and fries. I mean, what do you want? Why do you keep hanging around here? I need you to teach me. Give me a break. Uh, shrimp and fries. To go. You don't understand. I'm going to learn to surf or break my neck. What is it? You all of a sudden got this bug that you just have to go surfing? This is a line, right? No. My whole life I've done things for other people. In high school I played football because my old man expected me to. Mm -hmm. And my parents always figured I'd go to law school. So I did. Football scholarship, Phi Beta Kappa. Is this going to take a really long time? Wait. So I'm a big hero to my folks, right? Mm-hmm. But two years ago, they were killed in the car wreck. You can't imagine it. Your whole life changes. And I suddenly realized that all my goals had been their goals. And I hadn't been living my own life. All right. OK, tomorrow, here, 6 AM. If you are one minute late, I'm gone. I'll teach you a few things, and then after that, you're going to be on your own. Okay. I, you, you can't be a bad actor and be in a scene with an actor as good as Lori Petty and have her have so much to react off of as she does in that scene, her eye movement. That's because Keanu's giving that to her. When they did that, what's the, what's the word? When they did the cutaway, she might have been like, actually, 
Patrick, would you mind just filling in for? Oh, you think that he was an officer? He wasn't doing dialogue. I'm sure he would have. I'm sure he would have been willing to. But she was like, "Would you mind?" Actually, do you have that, oh. that Apple box? It's really well made. The way the camera moves, the atmospherics, the lighting. I'm reminded of Ridley Scott or Tony Scott, whichever one uses all the smoke, which is just used to give this kind of like cinematic effect. And I think Ridley, wasn't Ridley attached to it direct this? It was one of them. And you're right. I, I also, I confused the two. Yeah, it was Ridley Scott. But, uh, but let's listen. Not, but could we also just not drop the fact uh, that he is a sociopath and emotionally manipulating her and lying He's to on the her. job, man. That's He's what you, on the job. He's on the job. If he was that much of a professional, he would not, spoiler for 1991's Point Break, begin a love affair with whoa, her. Whoa, whoa. At that moment that you just saw, yeah. he's not beginning a love affair. At that point, he's still using her for access to the surfer crew. So in the scene that follows, they surf, he falls, they kind of start to have a little chemistry together. And then that's when he gets his first look at, at Bodie. Bodie. And there's also the worst, like, 90s metal song. Matt, can you play a little of whatever that is? I'm sure Matt can explain it to us. Hey, this is Matt, the engineer. So Jason, I wouldn't refer to the song by the band Wire Train as heavy metal. I think it's more along the lines of alternative rock. Perhaps you're thinking heavy metal because the soundtrack contains a couple of tunes that might be more considered hair metal or glam metal. Uh, one in particular by the band Rat, best known for the song Round and Round. They included the song Nobody Rise for Free, which was actually the last tune they recorded together for decades. It also contains a song by the band L.A. Guns, maybe best known for the song The Ballad of Jane. Um, this was a band formed by Tracy Guns, who was in a band with Axl Rose, and that's where we get the name Guns and Roses. Anyway, back to you guys. But then she points out Bodie and she goes, guys, even crazier than you, Johnny. Like based on what? That he doesn't order shrimp and fries? Like who even wants to eat shrimp in a, as an afternoon lunch meal? I don't get it. I don't like shrimp. I don't get people who eat shrimp. And I certainly don't want to eat fried shrimp. You know? No, but okay. So anyway, <laughs> then they go to the beach. They have the great beach football scene. If you're going to have a nationally recognized sports hero. Maybe don't send him don't undercover. Send him undercover. <laughs> Yeah, he's a college football star, which even I know, like, oh, those are for some reason celebrities. It's 91. It's before the internet. You couldn't go it, Google a guy. I will say. You got to go get the microfiche. A very effective turn. The way it was revealed uh, from Bodie and him drawing Johnny in and the way that Johnny went yes. over the rest of the crowd through that. I want to play our first Bodie clip here. This is after they've vanquished a team of localized surfers. Who are those guys? Nazi assholes. The guy you dropped is Bunker Weiss. The big one is War Child, AKA Lupton Pittman. They, uh, they think there's some kind of death squad around here. What's their program? Brains are wired wrong and they're into some bad shit. Like what, illegal shit? Maybe, I don't know. That's not what I'm talking about. They only live to get radical. They don't have any real understanding of the sea so they'll never get the spiritual side of it. Hey, you're not gonna start chanting or anything, are you? <laughs> I might. You still haven't figured out what riding waves is all about, have you? It's a state of mind. 
It's that place where you lose yourself and you find yourself. You don't know it yet, but you got it. It's right there. I saw you with those guys. You're a pit bull. You didn't hesitate, and they didn't back you down an inch. And that is very rare in this world. Well, thanks for stepping in. Nada. Later. You can't say enough about what an incredible screen actor Swayze was. To me, this is peak Swayze. This is his greatest role. Like you said before, he's all in on what the character is. Yeah. And that scene has so much belief. I'm always struck with that scene when Keanu's working him and trying to say, like, what kind of stuff? And Swayze's like, what? No, I don't know. That's the real acting. There is something going on there other than just saying a line. He's deflecting something he doesn't know about Keanu's character. Yeah. And he's just also a golden god. I mean, he was in the peak shape. Looking at him and thinking like, you know, Jason Momoa is great and all, but we did not have a Patrick Swayze Aquaman movie, and that is a crime. When you watch some of the making of stuff and you watch him interviewed around the time, he's so different than this character. Mm -hmm. When you watch Keanu talking, he's pretty much the same as he is in the movie, in the chair, talking about the movie. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But when you look at Swayze talking, he's nowhere like Bodie at all. It's almost chilling. It's like weird to watch him in these things. And in its own way, it's like a love story between those two guys. The relationships that Johnny Utah has in the movie are always grounded in like love and mutual self-respect. Mm -hmm. Even with Angelo Pappas, even with Lori Petty, old hackneyed line though it is, like just working a job and then I fell in love, but it's for real. Yes, but he's with her. I, I just don't think those relationships can be entirely plausible and believable in the movie in the way that they are if those actors were getting nothing back. Yeah. Giving them something. I like what you said, the kind of love between them, and it does have to do with Johnny's searching for something. Right. And he is searching for something with everybody, and Bodie sees that there's a secret, and he thinks that, yes, the spiritualism that he had found with the sea might be what Johnny finds, and Pappas likes Keanu's sort of drive. He wants to impress Pappas. And he wants to impress um, uh, Laurie Petty. Yeah, Laurie Petty's Tyler. character. Tyler. So there is something consistent in the character. And even though, like I said, he's not my favorite screen presence. And it, it's not so overstated. It just, it's an engine running in the background. Yeah, man. There's some interesting, funny guys in the full cast and crew. A couple of the guys in Swayze's crew, one of whom, bizarrely, is Lee Turgeson from Oz. Do you remember Oz, the HBO yeah, yeah. show? <laughs> you know Lee Turgeson? He was like, he's Which, like the main guy in Oz. He was like the incarcerated for like a drunk driver accident or something and he doesn't really belong uh -huh. in this violent prison and he's the most like nebbishy white milk toast guy yeah uh, but in Point Break he's the fearsome killer that Bodhi turns Tyler over to yeah the movie spends a <laughs> lot of time with Bodhi describing just how much of a sociopath Rosie, Rosie is long black hair he's all buffed out he's one of the guys one of my favorite 90s actors James LaGrosse ah uh. Love him. James LaGrosse. He looked like Klaus Kinski with the long hair. He, did. he had been shot going around and sort of like snarling as he's trying to shoot back. When they take Johnny skydiving the second time, he's like, what do you think about it, Johnny? And like they're having the big wind machine blown. Like if you look at the making of, they show the contraption they built. It uh -huh. looks like Doc Ock. It's like a sequence of cantilevered arms, kind of like these podcasting things. What are these called? Stand? Cantilevered arms? <laughs> And it's like all five of them on their own little stands. And then the camera's on its own stand too, which is why it can float with them. And that's how they did the close-up shots. Yeah. Uh, but man, I love James LaGrosse. He was such a great presence in the 90s. I guess he's never stopped working since the 80s, really. Yeah. I also really love him in a obscure 90s movie called My New Gun, where he plays You'd Skippy mentioned that before. Op opposite Diane Lane. Really worth checking out. Uh, what is it about? It's about My New Gun. 
Your new gun or his no, new gun? Debbie and Gerald's lives drastically change after they get a gun. Their mysterious neighbor, Skippy, becomes an important and transforming figure in their lives. He's just always kind of reliably fun and worth seeing. I saw him in something relatively recently, uh, How Did This Get Made, did an episode on something called Solar Babies, which Mel Brooks had produced, mm. and it was meant to be another Star Wars thing, and I guess it was about a post-apocalyptic- This got made or never got made? Got made. Okay. Post-apocalyptic world where kids were in a reformatory that Charles Durning ran, and they had kind of like a roller derby death thing, and James LaGrosse's in I'm it. Intrigued. He played like the nerdy guy. You know, it's not a great Is he one of the babies or is he one of the- He's one of the solar babies, yeah, because then they go on a quest. So they weren't technically babies. They were no longer, I think they had been born- Was it like solar babies, like a Telly Savalas kind of babies or was it like- I think it was like, these are the kids born after like the sun died or didn't die. That makes sense. Something like that. This was, I think, 85 or something like that. Another fun guy in Bodie's surfer crew is a guy that I just looked up because he was kind of charismatic. And then when I saw the making of stuff, he's kind of like a, a, an older poor man's Tom Cruise. Uh, this is John Philbin. He plays the really buffed out guy. What's his name in the movie? What well, it's Nathaniel it? in the movie. Nathaniel, yeah. So I was like, that guy's kind of good. You know, he's got a little something. Let me see what else he's worked on since then. So he was in a few things. He was in Tombstone. He's in a couple other things. Then as, you know, listen, man, it's Hollywood, okay? It's a tough game. You want to stay in the game? You're going to end up doing some stuff. Now it seems like he's got about 15 years of sort of softcore porn movies under his belt. So this is one, 2001's Perfect Fit, in which he played Monty. This is the greatest logline ever. An aimless young man turns to murder in order to satisfy the desires of his new girlfriend, a narcissistic blue jean fetishist. They stole my idea. But it's funny, if you look at the making of Point Break stuff, um, the, the guy is in there and he's just so happily cheerfully himself, I guess, like a guy who spends a lot of his time on softcore movie sets <laughs> being the guy. Prior to that, uh, the thing that I noticed about- um, John Philbin. About John Philbin, and I don't know if his father is Regis Philbin or not, that he was in Children of the Corn. Talk about Sun Children or whatever the hell you're talking about. Solar, yeah, a sequel to Solar Babies. Uh, <laughs> I found with Point Break and looking at the IMDb page, and they would say like, oh, this is Nathaniel. This is yeah. this is Bowl. This is Jim. Yeah. It's 20 years after everybody's gotten new headshots. I'm like, I can't. Can't figure out who's who. It is one of the two. So so I'm looking at the children of the corn. It's like, he played Amos. And I'm like, well, he was eight or whatever. The only children of the corn kid I remember is like the red-haired kid. The red-haired kid. What's his name? Jolius? um, Jolinus? Because the main kid is Malachi, who's the main evil kid. But I think the red-haired one is- Isn't that played by Jake Busey? I kept thinking that it was the guy who replaced Anthony Michael Hall as Rusty in the uh, your, in the vacation <laughs> movies. And no matter how many times I clicked refresh, it would it never wouldn't. become- mm, Interesting. <laughs> Somebody, he planted a worm in the internet <laughs> to avoid anyone figuring out. Some things that Swayze turned down, apparently he turned down $6 million to play Johnny Castle in a Dirty Dancing sequel. And I watched this video frame by frame to confirm this, and I, I couldn't get a clear shot. But apparently, he is a dancer in the Toto music video Rosanna from 1982, Swayze, which is an iconic music video. Remind our listeners who, who don't remember that iconic. It's a gang fight between two plaid-wearing greaser types while Toto plays inside a chain-link fence <laughs> in some unspecified urbanish landscape. And Rosanna is a red dress wearing blonde who toys with all the boys and sets off the fight. Uh, so it doesn't involve roller skating. Does not involve roller skating, unfortunately. I remember when he did like a Barbara Walters special, they were showing clips of different things and he had been in, and I recognized that he had been in MASH and Great North MASH and episode. South. 
Uh, but I do remember they were showing one thing about like how his dancing chops for dirty oh, yeah. dancing. And then they showed him like dancing on roller skates. So I'm assuming that's yeah. from Skate Town, USA. Um, yeah, he's a trained ballet dancer. Yeah. And his mother was a dance instructor, right? You know who else was a, I didn't realize, who had a whole career as a Christopher as a Walken. Even You're going to blow my mind even Mads more? Mikkelsen. No. Mads Mikkelsen. The really? Danish Christopher Walken. But yeah, he was a, he had a whole career as a dancer. I did not know uh, that. I think he was a ballet dancer. Or he really? Certainly danced, yeah, yeah. Huh. Who knew? I Breaking his, news. His mother did. Chris, I want to play you another iconic Swayze moment. Don't tell me to relax, Bodie. He's a fucking federal agent. should have shot him when I had the chance. I'll deal with that fucking cop. No, Rosie. Do you realize that we have hit 30 banks in three years and they haven't been able to touch us? And all this does is up the stakes of the game. Fuck the stakes, Bodie. I mean, the only person this is a game to is you, man. This is real. I mean, this is serious shit, and I am scared, okay? So I say we get the fuck out of here now, tonight, okay? Run, you die. Come on, think about it. This was never about money for us. It was about us against the system. That system that kills the human spirit. We stand for something. To those dead souls inching along the freeways in their metal coffins, we show them that the human spirit is still alive. So you trust me? Then don't worry about this guy. I know exactly what to do with him. Chills, man. That's a pretty good scene because the fact that they call out like, yeah. Why don't we just freaking shoot him or get rid of him or, or yeah. run? But you buy what little you have of everybody else's character. Like there's kind yeah. of enough going in there and you could see how Bodie explains it kind of makes sense. The skydiving sequences are amazing. And I think the first skydiving sequence, which is what happens right after the scene we just played. And in this point, an interesting tension exists because they all know he's a federal agent, mm -hmm. but they play out a scenario as if he's still welcome in their gang and this is just something fun that they do. But there's a tension in the plane where they do the little thing where they switch parachute packs because he wants to know who packed his chute and Bodhi says, oh, here, take mine. And then they start sw swapping yeah. them around. But then that first great sequence, the way the music is, it's beautiful music. They come together in that circle while they're falling. I'm always moved by that scene. And I think what's cool about the movie, that scene, even though everyone knows who everyone is now, mm -hmm. But the scene is still real between them. They still mm -hmm. have this incredible moment skydiving together. And the movie allows for that to happen and then the more messy, uncomfortable truth to happen after the fact. This is where Bodhi starts to tip over. Go! Oh, sorry, I, I can't do it, bro. They're on the road. And where they're going, there are no phones, so you are shit out of luck. <coughs> I hate this, Johnny. I really do. I hate violence. Don't you see that's why I need Rosie? I could never do that, man. I could never hold a knife to Tyler's throat. She was my woman. We shared time. But Rosie is a mechanism, you know? Once you set him in motion, he will not stop. He's like got this gift of blankness. But when three o'clock comes, he will gut her like a pig and try not to get any on his shoes and there's nothing I can do about it unless I get there. So I guess that makes us partners because we both have the same goal to get me where I need to go, right? For all that we had said about Bodhi's a pretty good guy and, you know, he really is spiritual. Well, 
there's a kind of, it's not a conscious hypocrisy, but there's definitely a, uh, let's say, a dramatic conflict within him. Well, I think that he's willing to do what he needs to do in pursuit of the goal, which, yes, ultimately is a selfish goal. And I right. think ultimately the character of Bodhi is stripped of the pretense that this is all an act against society as the bodies begin to pile up. The bank robberies all go without a hitch. No one, no one's been harmed in any of the robberies up until the cop on the floor pulls a gun and, yeah. and shoots Bodie in the final bank robbery scene. And then that police officer is killed. Other people are killed. That sets in motion the escalation, which results in Tyler being held captive by Rosie and them trying to get these guys onto the skydiving plane again. And ultimately the famous scene where you see Swayze saying, I know it's hard for you, Johnny. I know you want me so bad it's like acid in your mouth, but not this time. Adios, amigo! And he jumps out of the plane without a parachute. I uh, will say, I don't think anybody besides Keanu Reeves would have been able to pull off jumping out of a plane without a parachute. <laughs> I don't think it's any other It wouldn't believe. occur to him that it's dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the famous shot because it's really Patrick Swayze yes. jumping out of a plane in real time. Famously in the production, Swayze got heavily into skydiving and was jumping like 50 times until the producers and the insurance company got wind and they were like, you have to stop doing that. <laughs> and so they made him stop, but that shot was captured after they said, they, of course, in the way the, the beam counters, they're like, no more skydiving. We must get to the conclusion of filming. So I think either James Cameron, who was producing this, he was married to Catherine Bigelow at the yes. time, or the producers told him, if you stop skydiving now, once we're done with principal photography, you can go again. And I think that's when they filmed that famous shot of him where you can see there's, yeah. no, there's no stunt double. Wow. Um, but I think he's in some other skydiving scenes pretty clearly. There's one where he does like that, that double pike. Like, I don't think that's a double. Um, I, I tried to read as much as I could and see, and it sounded like um, maybe there were some other shots that they used of him because it, it looks very much like him and it's not shot on the apparatus. Yeah. So maybe it was the same thing. I don't know. Yeah. Um, one of the things that's hilarious, in the bank robbery before that, I love this thing in movies, which this contains two of the all-time great dumb movie tropes that don't exist in real life. One is that if you're ever a bank robber and you get your way into the vault through extreme cleverness, the bank makes it very easy. They have a shelf set up, and on the shelf, all the money is just laid out right there on the shelf so that you can unzip your duffel bag and put all the cash in. They don't have the money locked away inside the vault, because why? Let's just put it on a shelf. Look, if you've demonstrated enough cleverness to get that far, it. it's yours. <laughs> that you I love. It. The other thing I love, it has a bulletproof vest ripping scene, which is our guy gets shot, and then the reveal that our hero is not dead is done through... <laughs> Pop the buttons and um, show the vest with like three slugs in the middle. Oh, suddenly I'm so hot. Gotta yeah, like, <laughs> if you've been shirt. shot, I'm not going to open my shirt. Okay. <laughs> but those are two great movie things. Um, I also love before this scene where they're all in the plane and James LaGrosse is shot. And before all that happens, uh, I think there's a moment where he, where Johnny Utah reunites with Pappas. And he's like, do you know where they're going? And Keanu's line is, 
Santa Monica Airport, fast. <laughs> it's like, do you need to add the fast? Yeah, like, exactly. I think we get it. We're... <laughs> One funny line, I was I was defending this movie to my wife as we were watching it, and I- Lots I, of luck. I uttered the line, people will be talking about this movie in 100 years, to which she retorted, you shouldn't have a podcast if that's what you think. <laughs> <laughs> to which I retorted, listen, there's a lot of other reasons why yeah, I, just, <laughs> I shouldn't have a podcast, yeah. but okay, I'll Make add that, that to the list. Make that part of the class action <laughs> against this show. Oh, God. Um, uh, well, you know, part of it, I mean, the reason why- uh, we're doing this is people are talking like it does amaze me like how much people love this and I had never seen the uh shooting in the air. Oh, so good. Uh like rather I had seen it out of context. You know, that was before. parodied parodied in Hot Fuzz. Yes. Did you see the Simon Pegg Nick Frost Hot Fuzz? I, I mean, I, looking back, yeah, of course that, that was. But at the time I was just like, I don't know, he's obviously it's emotionally so good. Uh, Boom, 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 boom. I do love it. God. You see, if they let the camera go, he shoots up in the air, he just lays there for five minutes, and the bullets end up coming back down onto it, him. It's one of the funny things that Keanu has, which is like he has an inarticulateness to him that his characters acknowledge, right? Mm -hmm. um, this is a really hilarious one that I would just, one, one more we have to play. This is when Lori Petty discovers him. We have to have this moment in any film like this yeah. where the love interest gets up in the middle of the night to take a piss or something and happens to discover his gun and badge, which I guess he just left lying around, like the banks leave cash lying <laughs> around the vault. And so she comes creeping into the room. A lawyer! You lied to me! Tyler, put the gun down. I'll bet you lied about everything. I'll bet you lied about your parents! You just tell me the truth, Johnny. Did your parents die in a car accident? Did they? They live in Columbus, Ohio. I work bank robbery. The guys I'm after are surfers. I needed you at first, but after that I did- Fuck you! Don't you have a soul? Tyler, look, I fucked up, okay? I know I fucked up. I wanted to tell you, but I couldn't. I was afraid you'd leave. Good guess, huh? Fuck, why can't I ever say what I really mean? Well, First actually, you know, maybe so he can't say. He's like, I, I would have told you the truth, but I was afraid you would not want to be with me if you knew the truth. What's so great about it is you can imagine Catherine Bigelow working many, many times to do the scene without all the exposition. Instead, she's like, you know what? Let's just have you articulate exactly what your inner dialogue is, and maybe that'll work. If you could, uh, if you could convey with your face the idea that this is exactly what you were afraid of happening, take 162. Okay, you know what? Let's just spell it out. I was afraid that if I told you, you would leave me. Good guess, huh? And then when he's like, uh, why can't I ever say what I feel? <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> But it's so good. You know what? You're with him in the moment. He's like us, Chris. He's every inarticulate guy. I mean, he doesn't speak well all the time. Is that a crime in this man's world? Uh, no, no. It's obviously not a crime in that man's world. Volcast and Crew is brought to you by Out of Jack's Mind, a new comedy short video series from Jack Plotnick. 
co-writer and director of the Sony Pictures feature film, Space Station 76, and current recurring guest on Grace and Frankie and Z Nation. Out of Jack's mind, like and follow at Chuckler Comedy on Facebook or Chuckler.com. Chuckler, original comedy delivered daily. This goes to the alternate uh, casting. Oh, let's go into our new segment. This is a new segment that we're going to debut, which is called, in a hilariously on-point title, Alternative Casting. Maybe it's got like computer voice, like bleep bloop, spitting out, uh, this actor would fit role. And then there's like a fishing line, like for casting. Yeah, maybe. I like that. Put that one back. So anyway, this is our new segment where we are going to delve into the alternative casting, the world that might have been. And I defy you, Chris, to tell me that this is a better world than the one you just enjoyed. Uh, So alternative Johnny Utah's, as we said, the movie was originally going to be directed by Ridley Scott in 1986 with, hold your breath, Matthew Broderick in the Johnny Utah role and Charlie Sheen as Bodie. I would have liked to have seen that. (laughs) Well, do you mean that you would have liked to have seen the train wreck that that inevitably would have Are become? Are you kidding? In 1986, that's when Ferris Bueller's Day Off came out. So that's the Martin Bro- that's the <laughs> that's the Matthew Broderick you would have been seeing, okay? Matthew Broderick as Johnny Utah, football star turned FBI agent, and Charlie Sheen as surf guru stroke ringleader Bodie. No. That would not have worked. I mean, Broderick does have sort of the naif quality that I guess it would have been a different kind of like, you know, it would have been a fish out of water story as opposed to what we got here. And instead of a football star, probably would have been a debate debate team captain. Debate team captain. Okay. Also considered for the role of Johnny Utah, would the movie have been better with a better actor in the Johnny Utah role? Or would the movie have lost something? One of the people considered was Johnny Depp who I think you will admit, in addition to being a big movie star, is a talented actor who has depth and layers and can do many, many different things. Yes, I would say so. Now, would you buy Johnny Depp as as Johnny Utah in a way that you think would have improved this movie? Yes. Yeah? I think I, think I would have. Uh, I think of the kinds of characters he's played with uh, Tim Burton, yeah, you know, and the and the sort of oddness and quirkiness that to me could have substituted in for the sort of uh, woodenness and strange distancey thing that uh, that Keanu uh, brings. I guess one man's woodenness and strange distancey thing is another man's manna from heaven. Yes. How about Val Kilmer as Special Agent Johnny Utah? Loved it. Would you like that? I would have loved that. I love Val Kilmer. He would have been good, but I, I think Val Kilmer is great and was great in many things. In this era, like 90-91 Val Kilmer, I wonder if he would have been able to share the screen deferentially in the way required of Johnny Utah. Johnny Utah on screen opposite Busey and opposite Bodie and opposite Lori Petty, for that matter, mm-hmm. has to always be subservient. He's not the alpha in the scene, male or female. Mm -hmm. Kilmer is such a scene-stealing hog, especially in his youth. He's always so charismatic. He was so confident and a great actor. Yeah. But I wonder if he would have been able to do that deferential thing. I don't don't really think of him as someone who who did that well. But I think of him as such like a cool presence. He is, and but he's he sort always of laid the back. Presence, but he's always yeah, the presence. Maybe, yeah. Now, later in life, like in Heat, 
He is that subservient presence to De Niro, but it's De Niro. Well, funny you should mention that because you know who was supposed to play that role. The Val Kilmer role? Yeah. Uh, in Heat? Yes. Keanu Reeves. Is that true? Now, I give Keanu Are you Reeves- sure? Yeah. Oh, Tell th- me the- I've been chomping at the bit. Source the whole me. Thing. Source me. Oh, gosh. I mean, it's on so many articles. I don't know which one I pulled it from. I had heard this story Chris, years ago. The great role of Chris Scheherales. Where did you read that? I didn't know that. So here's what I've read about Keanu. For, I give Keanu Reeves a lot of shit, but he seems, I have to say, he seems like a super nice. Decent man. Decent guy. He didn't do, you know, you were talking about the amount of money that Patrick Swayze turned down to do oh. Dirty or Dancing. Reeves didn't do Speed 2. And he, to this day, says that it it ruined his career because he wouldn't play in the Hollywood system. Wouldn't play ball. Uh, And he said he wouldn't do it because of the shitty script, which, you know, again, (laughs) we'll let history decide whether- uh, First Speed is great. uh, Great. Great action movie. You know, it it was like this in the sense that it was fun, but I was like, ah, if only it had somebody else in the middle of it. No. Okay, Uh, agree to disagree. Keep going. So- Reeves into speed to it. He's already then, you know, becoming a little bit, he getting a little bit of a uh, flack in Hollywood for not doing that. Then when he was offered the role of Chris Harris in Michael Mann's heat, he turned it down in order to play Hamlet at Canada's Manitoba theater center. God, do I wish I'd seen that. So do <laughs> I. And I was like, that's that the thing that I was like, somewhere? cause again, I don't, think he's well, good. I can't as imagine an actor. Either. Don't you? Pr- that's what I'm saying. Isn't that cool. I think that's fantastic. And uh, you know, uh, you Keanu's know, Hamlet. I think it must have been great. I think he must have been like, yeah. Here's the poster. It's all black. Two words. Keanu, Hamlet. Hamlet. That's it. I'm sure they tried it the other way around, but they're like, nah, no, nah, that's for Keanu this time. But the funny thing is, so 91. You know, whatever, however old he would have been, I'm sure if he took the month off to do Heat. And next, <laughs> the following summer, I'm sure Manitoba Theater Center would have been just as happy to have him play Hamlet. Uh, but still, but he kept to his, uh, kept his integrity. He did it. I haven't heard that it was a particularly revelatory production, but, uh, but I think that's awesome. So that's why he turned that down. And that's why that went to Val Kilmer. So imagine a, a universe where Val Kilmer was Johnny Utah. I'm going to find that on video. I'm going to go to Canada. You know, like, excuse me. Don't you guys film stuff for the archives on Broadway? Yeah, yeah, on Broadway, sure. And I'm sure Canada is just like Broadway. Just like Broadway. All of Canada. (laughs) The Manitoba Theater Center. I think Kilmer would be interesting. um, But but again, I think you underappreciate the way in which Keanu's subservience actually fits what's going on in this movie. And I think that... Kilmer at the time was a little too overconfident and might have might have might have been a little clashy with those guys. So Ridley was going to do it in '86. That was when Matthew Broderick was going to play John mm-hmm. Utah because he's, I guess, one of the bigger stars in the world. Then right after um, Ferris Bueller, Ferris Bueller, and Charlie Sheen as Bodie. So we didn't get that. I think that's a. I think I think we're all in agreement. Matthew Broderick and Charlie Sheen, not a good idea. Johnny Depp, however, I think would have been an interesting Johnny Utah. He's a better actor than. Keanu Reeves, I'll say that. Besides Charlie Sheen, I wonder who else they considered for Bodhi, because that, that is one thing. I didn't see uh, a lot of Bodhi. A lot of other Bodhi's. Other Bodhi <clears throat> possibilities. But we didn't talk about the fact that, one, Willem Dafoe actually turned down the role of, of Johnny Utah. He oh, I didn't off- hear that. I didn't oh, know that. yeah. Willem Dafoe as Johnny Utah. That wouldn't have worked. Think of Light Sleeper. Think of how he was with- um, Yeah, too weird, too creepy. With the psychic. Well, and here's the other, Patrick Swayze got Bodie after auditioning for Johnny Utah. 
He, so I wonder yeah. if they were to have had him as John Utah. No, he wouldn't have worked as Utah. Who, all of these, to, to my mind, they're all pairings that they would have to be. Like, who would be able to be the, but you'd have to have like Cary Grant. I think it's very hard to think of anyone else being Bodhi. I think mm-hmm. that Swayze, it's just one of those turns in a movie for a lot of different reasons. Where the actor was in his or her life at the time. How they kind of grokked with the director and the other cast members. And also a physical look. Like physical he's, he's look. not just he's the embodiment like, of it. an incredibly handsome guy, but also that, you know, the, the, he has the aura. flowing hair and that aura. Yeah. Yeah, he's charismatic. Some, yeah. Um, and he's a good enough actor to believe and pull it off where in another actor, like you never once for a minute doubt that Swayze is a surfer or a skydiver. And, you know, to some degree, he wasn't any of those things when mm-hmm. they were making this movie. He learned to do them only enough to. Um, one final Patrick Swayze anecdote um, in about... So the company where we work was founded in late 2007. Swayze died um, in the fall of 2009. In the fall of, I want to say 2008, for some reason, and I don't know why, I was reading about Swayze. I probably had seen this and was going down the one of the frequent kind of Swayze rabbit holes that I went down. I think he had also done something that was maybe going around on the internet or something where he was singing and dancing and using that side of him. I said, you know what? We need to do a Christmas special and it needs to be called A Very Swayze Christmas. And we actually went so far as to approach his agents and representation and we got a note back. And I don't remember how, I I think we knew that he was sick, but I don't think it was quite as, I don't, you know, I think in the way that stars frequently do, it's like maybe you don't quite know how How far along things were. I had written up this thing about a very Swayze Christmas, which would have been an hour long holiday special that allowed him to sing, to dance, to do comedy, just kind of an old fashioned variety hour, which at the time in like 2008 kind of felt like something people would have been responsive to. Mm -hmm. And he'd also been kind of out of the public eye for a while. And it kind of felt like he was ripe for that moment to have, have just appreciate him in the sense of he's this wildly talented guy who could mm-hmm. do all this stuff. And there really wasn't an opportunity for him to do all that stuff in movies after this kind of period. He always, he didn't, he wasn't in a lot of great movies after this. Anyway, we got a nice note back from her that said, you know, thank you so much for this idea. This would, Patrick would love to do something like this, but unfortunately, you know, uh, she didn't, she wasn't spilling the beans. She didn't say like, he's not well enough, but it was a version of that. Yes. Uh, that we kind of got the message. So I always felt like a very Swayze Christmas was one of the things I would have loved to have done at our production company that yeah. that maybe a year or two before we maybe could have done, but missed it. So um, I guess then it's time before we move on to play one the uh, classic closing scene of the film. Oh, well, wait a minute. We can't not play this. Sorry, we got to, and don't cut this out. You can't do this movie and not include this scene. Oranges, sir. Take some oranges. You want some oranges? Dollar, sir. No. Not no. Orange, no. We got a lot. We got a lot. Dollar, sir. No, thanks. Good luck. God. <laughs> for a turkey cemetery. Oh. It's time for lunch. Angelo, it's 10.30. Right around that corner, there is a sandwich shop. They sell meatball sandwiches. Best I've ever tasted. Would you go get me two? Come on, partner. Two. Thank you. Utah, give me two. And the fact that they pull up right then. Yes. I was like, oh, so it's going to be that he is in league with them and he's like feeding them information. Who's in league with them? Pappas. 
That, as if he was like, oh, he was getting rid of his straight rid lace of Utah partner. To, oh, that would have been a good wrinkle. Uh, but nope. The kid trying to sell bags of oranges to Papa's. What I love about this is so busey. He like, he stops to almost ask Johnny Utah if he wants a bag of oranges. And when Johnny Utah doesn't, then Papa says to the kid, no, no, we got a lot. We got a lot. <laughs> if you'd been here 10 minutes ago, you'd have been fine. We but- got a lot. Oh my God, Gary. Too fucking funny. Well, the classic ending scene, we got to play this. This is after the fight on the beach. Johnny Utah has chased Bodie to Australia, which is identifiably <laughs> Oregon. You know, there's no way I can handle a cage, man. I don't care. You got to go down. It's got to be that way. Johnny Utah gets his guy, right? Good for you. That's real good. Gonna be a big hero now. But look at it, Johnny. Look at it! This is a once in a lifetime opportunity, man. Just let me go out there. Let me get one wave before you take me. One wave. I mean, where am I gonna go, man? Cliffs on both sides. I'm not gonna paddle to New Zealand. My whole life has been about this moment, Johnny. Come on, compadre. Come on. Now, look, Chris, you can fixate on the ludicrousness of a law enforcement officer allowing a suspect who has killed police officers to escape. Sure. However, in the context of the movie, that scene between those two guys, it's a moment of real understanding because Special Agent Johnny Utah is done with special agenting, even though you don't know it in that scene. As you say, he then tosses his badge. And I think, I hope a wave washes up over the badge. I hope they, I hope they went there. I don't know. That. <laughs> I hope she went for that subtle, subtle right. shot. <laughs> no, I don't think, I don't. Maybe think it just lands with a plop on the sand. Yeah. Cause I think he also like passes the other cop. They also bring a lot of firepower for one surfer. Well, you let him go, Utah. In order to make it look like Australia, they did hire one Australian. Like uh, when he's walking down towards the thing and he's just like, hey, how's the surfing today? Oh, yeah. Like that is an, oh, actual, yeah, Australian an actual Australian surfer. surfer. But I think that was it. There was like, we could either fly the crew out to Australia or yeah. we just pay this guy. It's incredible they got that shot. I think they filmed that in Waimea in Hawaii and that's Derek Dorner, who's a very famous big wave surfer who uh-huh. doubled for Swayze on a lot of the big waves. And they were talking one of the making of things that the swell was up for the first time in a number of years when they happened to be filming. When a wave, when a set would come in, 
they would have to go and keep the other surfers out of the water, which of mm-hmm. course nobody wants to get out of the water for a fucking Hollywood film crew. Say, you know, we saw how surly surfers get. Uh, but Derek Joyner had some status, so he was able to go out there. And he said it was very hard to do because he's he's used to catching the waves, yeah. but he actually had to fall off his surfboard on purpose on a really big wave. And that's a shot they actually got of, of him falling just in the right time and then having the wave close out over him. It's poignant, man. I don't know. And he lets Bodie go out his way, which I, I, listen, if I was the family of the police officer killed in the bank (laughs) robbery, that would probably be unsatisfying. Yes, justice for us. I think that the ending is, yes, it's ludicrous. However, there could be no other ending. It's the ending everybody deserves because, um, uh, granted, they could have upped the stakes a little about why Johnny Utah is pissed off so much at the FBI, which didn't really do anything wrong to him, as far I, as I can tell. A, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, he, he sure, his boss is kind of a jerk, but he's not <laughs> that bad. Yeah, I mean, maybe because Papa's got killed? Uh, I don't know. I don't you know, I don't really understand. Even I, that seemed like, yeah, it's well, kind of his you know, fault. I think what it is is that Bodie, so I think that Johnny Utah going forward from Point Break is going to be someone who embodies the best parts of himself, and the best parts of Bodhi before tipping over to the edge. Yeah. That's why he's not going to be a cop anymore, and he's still surfing every day. He's in pursuit of something more. Bodhi just took it too far. Which is which I get, and I think that's all that's all good. But I, I guess, as you put it, the FBI wasn't bad to him. But to throw the badge away dismissively, like, I understand resigning after it, but I don't know. To, to me, it seemed much more like, screw you, system. system. Which, you know, looking yeah. back on it, just all these years later, it's, it's it, I don't know, it just doesn't um Well, what's funny sincere. is they did that some months after principal photography concluded. And the producer says, in the meantime, Keanu had grown his hair out because he was going to do the Bill and Ted's sequel. Right. And Swayze had left to do, I think, the Roland Joffe movie. City of Joy. City of Joy. And so he had his hair cut. And he was like, they kind of showed up that way and were like, oh shit, we're gonna have a continuity problem. But in fact, it ended up working well because yeah. it kind of showed that, you know, Bodie's been on the run and and Johnny Utah has, you know, he's been he's been out. He's not into it anymore. He's, he's not into it, man. He's wearing a freaking denim jacket with one of those furry, fuzzy collars, man. He's <laughs> he's out on the point break and he ain't coming back. Nah. You know? Point's broken. Point is broken. So point break, love it so appreciative that it exists. I'm appreciative for the opportunity always to watch Patrick Swayze in this movie, which I think is a beautiful and very real spiritual performance that I'm moved by every time. And I'm not being ironic or funny when I say that. I think it's great to watch a, a, a Busey who still had it and could still deftly steal scenes with his innovative wordplay and just hilarious turns of phrases and ability to kind of do quirky stuff. And a strong energy. So energetic. He's like an overgrown child. Yeah. And Mr. Keanu Reeves, screen presence, non parallel. Anyway, that, uh, (laughs) shall we move on to rants and raves? Yes. Chris, what do you got? Well, um, I've got a rant that I've actually been saving for a little bit. Uh, Jason, are you a cat lover? Sure, I like cats. Would you like to look like your cat? Well, I don't own a cat. Alienate friends and family with super realistic masks based on your pets. This is an article I saw on the AV Club about a Japanese service that makes these wearable replicas of mm. your, you send them a picture of your cat. and they Why send you only nothing. cat? 
You can't get one for your dog? They might not have the hardware. How about my bird? How about my macaw? You know, perhaps they just Macaw, rather. How about my salamander? How about my uh maybe if let's if they have spider cats, then maybe they'll uh they'll grow the line. But for now it's just cats. And uh, you can wear a replica of your pet's face and (laughs) you can look like your freaking cat. And they have all these pictures with the article of people with the cat's mask looking at the cats. And of course, the cat mask is dead-eyed, reflected in the strange inscrutability of the cat's face. So I don't know if it's good or bad for the cat and whether they like it or not. The service costs roughly 300,000 Japanese yen, which converts to about, as of a couple days ago, 2,700 US dollars. Jeez. I can't uh, afford that because I'm spending all my money on cat food. See, that's a real cat lover. This whole thing did uh, bring to mind uh, Scott Thorson, if you remember him, Liberace's boyfriend. Ah, yes. Who got uh, plastic surgery. Played by Matt Damon. Played by Matt Damon. Great movie. uh, In Behind the Cat Labra. Behind the Cat Labra. Uh, Labra. (laughs) He got plastic surgery to look like Liberace. He got plastic surgery so he could resemble him, but he felt that the relationship was one-sided. That's a good segue to my first rave, which is a Twitter feed called Can You Pet the Dog? I saw the comedian Megan Amram tweet about this. This is a Twitter feed. It's about video games. So it's a catalog of pettable and non-pettable dogs in video games. So manual input resulting in visual representation of petting is required for affirmation. Right. The posts will be like, you cannot pet the dog in the game Backbone. So you encounter it, they have a screenshot of a player encountering a dog, and you're unable to pet the dog. But in another one, you can pet the dog in Kingdom Hearts HD 2.8 Final Chapter Prologue Dream Drop Distance. So depending on your tastes. And it's just an entire Twitter feed of characters petting dogs or being unable to pet dogs in video games. (laughs) At Can You Pet the Dog. Can You Pet the Dog. Yes. Would you like to move on to headlines? Let's do it. Headlines. Okay. This is a story that I found and then uh, loyal listener RF Brown also tweeted it at us. Uh, Iditarod lead lost as dogs quit. So a musher in the Iditarod trail sled dog race yelled at one of his animals and the dogs promptly sat down and refused to mush and carry the sled any farther. He had a five hour lead and the dogs sat down and refused to move and were passed by other teams. When I saw that headline, I, re- I thought it was a joke yes. at first. I can see the dogs sitting there panting happily, but like secretly inside, they're like, you want to yell at us? He said, this is a, it's a labor story. Yeah. <laughs> Nicholas Pettit, or Petit, he said, quote, I yelled at Joey and everyone heard the yelling and that doesn't happen. And they wouldn't go anymore, anywhere. So we camped here. He sounds French. Yeah. Yeah. So I gave up on the 1500 mile race. He said his dogs were well fed. There's no medical issue keeping them from getting up and running. Quote, it's just a head thing. We'll see if one of those dog teams coming by will wake them up at all. Sounds philosophical about it. Finally, this just broke today. Vermont town swears in goat as new mayor. Finally. And the goat immediately defecates. (laughs) Lincoln, a three-year-old goat, was elected last week as Fairhaven, Vermont's mayor, with 13 votes. Following her swearing in, Lincoln couldn't wait and defecated on the ground, the Burlington Free Press reported. The police chief was reportedly quick to grab a broom and dustpan to clean up the mess before the mayor's approval rating could go down with constituents. (laughs) The goat narrowly beat out a dog named Sammy Veeger, a Boston Terrier. Um, this one I resemble, but not, I don't resemble the person you think I'm going to resemble. Okay. Passenger charged with choking driver who wouldn't stop singing Christmas songs in March. <laughs> Team driver. Okay. 
Don't take my Christmas music away from me. It starts, as we've discussed before on the podcast, Christmas music season starts November 1st, the day after Halloween. You uh -huh. wake up in the morning, or if you happen to be up at midnight, that's an allowable time as well. That's when you turn on the Christmas music. That's when you put on holiday traditions, Sirius XM, oh, and you play and stream Christmas songs straight through to Christmas and actually straight through New Year's, by the way. Uh -huh. And also when you get back from New Year's, you, you can keep going. Now, I literally, March is a bit much, but I think it just depends on the weather. Uh, where did this take place? Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Oh, that's a toss-up. Yeah, so. But did they know each other, or was it like somebody attacking an no, Uber driver? No, Uber driver. Yeah. It's an Uber driver. It's an Uber driver, yeah. No, it wasn't like two guys were out, like two friends. Choking is a very intimate act. He just says they arrested him and charged him with trying to strangle the driver of a minivan in which he was a passenger. Yeah. So I guess it's not an Uber. I think it's just maybe two guys, two friends maybe got a little too... Um, now this story, I just thought this, this shook me to my core, uh, but I also both understood and was horrified. Woman demands that plane turn back mid flight when she realizes she forgot her baby at the airport. A woman flying from Saudi Arabia to Malaysia insisted the plane turn back mid flight when she realized she'd forgotten something important at the airport, her baby. Wow. Following protocol, the, the pilot first had to get permission from an air traffic controller. Couldn't they put the kid on a different flight? Well, I mean, it's a I baby. Guess not. It's a baby. I mean, I guess you could put a kid there. Um, but, God. I mean, listen, I've forgotten a lot of stuff at the airport, like headphones, Kindles, uh phones from time to time. Yeah. But I'm extremely, extremely unlikely to forget my child. Yeah. Uh, but hey, shit happens, I guess. It can be, I mean, can, can be confusing out there in the airports. You know, we think it's bad with RTSA. Who knows what they go through to, like get on, uh, Saudi Arabia yeah, Saudi Arabia to get on the airline. Um, okay. Those are all my headlines, Chris. Fantastic. Well, we could go on diving further into the maelstrom of 90s appreciation, Hollywood, and indeed America's co-opting of ideas and ideals and repackaging them in bar form, easily carried and deployed as needed. But going deeper doesn't always bring you any closer to the truth. So, like Bodhi going out on his own terms. I think we should be leaving now. Yeah, that's probably a good idea. Thanks for listening to Full Cast and Crew. I uh, just wanted to remind everyone to subscribe if you haven't already, so you'll get a new episode every Thursday. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. So email us at fullcastandcrewpod at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at fullcastandcrew, or find us on Facebook.